0: This is Climate One. I'm Arianna Brocious, in for Greg Dalton. Many people have opted to install solar panels on their homes, but utilities aren't always supportive.
1: The primary concern that a lot of electric companies have had is that the people who are using the grid, maybe even more intensely, because now they're doing that two-way flow of electricity, aren't helping to pay for the larger costs of the system.
0: Solar advocates say distributed generation is essential to decarbonize our world.
2: We are going to increase our electricity consumption significantly. And it's actually really critical from a cost management perspective for all of us that we start to reduce our demand on the grid. So who holds the power with rooftop solar?
3: Solar unlike other energy sources allows individuals to take the future into their own hands. Everything else you had to ask the utilities to do the right thing.
0: Solar power has become one of the cheapest sources of electricity and is viewed as a cornerstone of our clean energy future. But it wasn't always that way. Adam Browning started the renewable advocacy organization Vote Solar in 2002. I asked him to recall how solar was viewed by utilities and the public 20 years ago.
3: You know, solar, I think, was seen as this potentially promising energy source that could create electricity without any emissions. But I think there was a healthy dose of, uh, it was kind of a a hippie pipe dream. It was just way too expensive to really make a dent on our country's energy future. And while uh, it sort of sounded nice, it wasn't something to really take seriously.
0: So what kind of innovations, technologically speaking and maybe financial, actually helped solar become mainstream?
3: Yeah. So when I got my start in solar, we actually did this through a ballot initiative that was going to put solar on city-owned buildings in San Francisco, as well as energy efficiency, and then use the money that you would have used to buy electricity to to pay down the bond that we are going to use to finance that investment. And at that point, solar was like nine bucks a watt, really expensive. And there was you know maybe 160 megawatts total in the US, which is just a rounding error in the overall scheme of things but looking at solar we did this analysis of like well what would it take to take this promising technology and uh and actually make it ubiquitous and cost was the big hurdle it was pretty clear that the way to get cheap solar was to send a a long-term market signal that you were gonna buy a lot of solar and that through economies of scale you're going to bring down costs and that was the premise that we launched Vote Solar in order to really transform the energy landscape of the United States and really globally by trying to drive as many solar markets as possible. And it was a beautiful example of where a policy premise really lived up to its promise. There was a global effort um, from California, from Japan, from Germany, and then from China to really build the scale of market demand that then catalyzed a tremendous amount of um, private capital into building the scale necessary to serve that demand and radically brought down the cost of solar to the point where it is now the cheapest new energy source, bar none, and really the foundation of our hope in the fight against climate change.
0: I think many people who know about rooftop solar or think about rooftop solar are aware that there's some federal incentives, tax credits, that have helped kind of get that market off the ground. So when did that begin? And when did rooftop solar specifically gain steam?
3: You know, through the 80s and 90s, there was on-again, off-again support for solar, often through uh, tax credits. And while tax credits are welcome, I will also say that they're an imperfect tool to drive it. So in the United States, I would say that actually, and this was the you know, the insight that uh, really drove the structure of Vote Solar, my nonprofit organization, was that most meaningful energy policy is made at the state level, not at the federal level. And you can view this both as a weakness, um, where it sure would be nice to pass the law through Congress and uh, have it be done with, or you can view it as a strength. And we chose to view it as a strength because at a state level, you're much closer to democracy. You can actually get things done. I have no idea how to actually pass something coherent through Congress right now. Our motto from the beginning was, if your plan involves Congress, it's a bad plan. I will say that uh, the Solar Energy Industries Association did awesome job at building federal support, principally through tax credits. And why tax credits were useful is because you didn't actually have to go through appropriations. So SIA was able to get long-term tax credits in a couple of different instances, and most recently provided for a sort of a scale down of the credits of the investment tax credit going forward. But really transformatively, I think it was really state-level policy that Built the industry around the country.
0: Is it true that rooftop solar actually then drove utility scale solar?
3: Oh, it absolutely was incubated. I mean, I think you could even make a case for solar to be incubated in the off-grid space first, with certain growers up in Humboldt County. But it was, you know, the the largest and most significant piece of policy that really catalyzed uh, the, the the growth of solar in this country was the California Solar Initiative. So Governor Schwarzenegger came up with a Million Solar Roofs Goal. And then we worked through the California Public Utilities Commission and then through the legislature to further validate it, a really large chunk of declining incentives that would drive rooftop solar market policy to the point where it could compete on its own without additional incentives with grid power. and. This was at a time when the idea of just really again building solar as a wholesale energy source was not seen as as uh, as cost it was not cost competitive, but by incubating it on the rooftops again that drove that long term market signal to invest in factories to invest in bespoke silicon manufacturing, and that rooftop solar market is what actually helped build the manufacturing base to the point where it suddenly became competitive uh, or passed that threshold to become competitive as a wholesale resource as well.
0: When a house or a a business adds rooftop solar, they switch from being an energy consumer to a supplier, and they're essentially competing um, with their electric utility, even though they depend on them also to be a battery and essentially continue to, to rely on the grid. So how does that model challenge the traditional model for utilities?
3: So, you know, I would say the long, long ago, you know, utility model was, was really hub and spoke and uh, it was a one-way flow of electrons and a one-way flow of money going in the opposite direction. What, you know, rooftop solar did is I think really catalyzed a revolution and I wouldn't even say of challenging, but of partnership. Solar, unlike other energy sources, allows individuals... To take control, to take the future into their own hands. Everything else, you had a situation where you had to ask the utilities to do the right thing. Solar was the pointy end of the wedge that allowed individuals to choose their own path going forward. And so when you had a situation like we did in the early 2000s, where you had polling super majorities of people in this country wanted to see a transition to renewable energy, bypassing the entities that were not investing in renewable energy and allowing people to take control of their own future was really a promising strategy secondly solar generates electricity at the point of usage on your own roof and so you are then competing against delivered power so the retail rates of electricity rather than the wholesale rates of electricity which are much lower you are both providing power to your own house, but you are uh, also lowering overall grid costs for everybody else. You are removing the need to build new generation. Uh, you're lowering the need to invest in new transmission lines. You're lowering the need to invest in upgrades to the distribution system. So the solar on the your neighbor's roof can lower your costs as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that there are utilities that would push back on the argument that Installing solar on your roof lowers your neighbor's costs because a lot of them have the frame more in this cost-shifting argument that inst- that actually you are then not contributing to the costs of the larger grid, which other everybody else is paying for. In most states, the way that rooftop solar is valued for the utility is through something called net metering, which is fairly simple in its basics, but can get complicated quickly. Um, but could you explain net metering at its most simple?
3: So net metering is a simple transaction under which if you install solar on your roof and you're generating power, the bulk of that generation you end up using. It's behind your meter. It powers your fridge. It may power your electric vehicle, but it, it, is, it is powering your house. If at certain times, if your solar system on your roof was generating more electricity than you were using, you could feed it back to the grid and you weren't getting paid for it. You were just simply turning your meter backwards. You were getting a credit for that electricity. That electron goes outside of your house and it is then available for the utility to sell to your neighbor at that same price. That you got credit for it. It is then a, a retail kilowatt hour. So you're simply, in essence, loaning it to the utility. They sell it to somebody else, your neighbor, and you get credit for that generation. There's a lot of advantages to it. First, it's extremely simple to implement. Secondly, it does a fair job of approximating the long term value of distributed generation, which again can. Obviate the need for new transmission upgrades to your distribution system and other collective grid costs.
0: There have been a, n- a number of states that have, on the local level, been challenging rooftop solar and net metering policies. Can you tell us what happened in Nevada?
3: In Nevada, we had a challenge to the net metering policy in the state through the utility commissions, and they. This was back in 2016, and they ended up killing the net metering program there, which absolutely decimated the really fast-growing rooftop solar industry there, put a lot of people out of work, and then also was a real challenge to the people who had invested in solar and weren't necessarily seeing the, the value of their generation. People were quite upset. Solar pulls through the roof, if you'll forgive the, uh, the pun here. And so through years of advocacy, of collaboration, of working with community groups, of working with uh, consumer groups, of working with environmental groups, we and a lot of different allies succeeded in bringing rooftop solar back to Nevada. You know, I think the lessons to be learned here is that first, it is not good policy to tell people that they can't have what they want. Particularly when there is a strong value with it, you should lean in to these climate solutions and figure out a way of making it work for everyone. I think you can point to Hawaii as another place where a similar effort happened. Electricity prices are extremely high in Hawaii, as you know, they have to import all of their fossil fuels, and that just drives up cost. Solar was an incredibly economic. No brainer there. Uh, the solar rooftop solar industry took off. There were strong efforts to stop it; those were successful. And then there were revisions that found a, a middle path going forward. And right now, you know, Hawaii was the first state in the country to pass a law that requires 100% renewable energy. And given their constraints in terms of their land area available, a lot of that is and should come from rooftop solar.
0: The reason that we've seen a lot of this pushback is, is driven by utilities, right? In most of these states where the utilities are opposing rooftop for their own reasons. What are those reasons?
3: Well, I'm sure you'll have, you know, utilities speaking for themselves on uh, your show later here, but I'd posit that, you know, it is uncomfortable for utilities to not be in control over their grid, to not be the ones that are in charge of generating their own power. It's not the way that they were set up. I would say in most places as well, uh, utilities are compensated in effect for the amount of capital they deploy. They are able to earn a return on their equity based upon, again, how much money they put out there. So perversely, the lower the cost of the overall grid, the less money that they're able to deploy and really the, the, that reduces their potential for economic gain.
0: So we're seeing fights right now in Florida. Um, California has, has an ongoing discussion, debate around their net metering pricing and policy. I'm curious what you think we can learn from states like Arizona, which has huge solar resources and several years ago made changes to their net metering policy that did impact rooftop solar. It still exists, but I don't think it's probably at the level that you might see were the policies more favorable for a homeowner. So are there lessons we can learn from those kinds of states?
3: I think I would go back to this works for both policymakers as well as utilities and an approach that tells consumers they can't have what they want, is in the long term doomed to fail. It is much better to lean in to figure out a way to make it work for everybody. And I think that that will really drive, frankly, uh, fundamental changes in the utility business model that we need to figure out different and better ways of financially rewarding success, successful utilities. So that's a much longer and much more difficult overall reform of regulatory policy, but is one that I think that we need to get into in order to actually land this plant. Our overall electricity system is going to be under enormous strain to make huge changes going forward if we're going to be successfully able to deal with climate change, with global warming. We need to get rid of gas in the building system. We also need to electrify transportation. That is going to at least double the amount of electricity that we need in this country going forward. And powering all of that with renewables is eminently possible, but it's really going to be helpful if we make as efficient usage as possible with the grid that we have right now. And it's not going to be only around rooftop solar. If we think about electric vehicles, as we add new EVs to the grid, that can either drive tremendous amounts of uh, you know new generation capacity necessary, which will add costs to everybody, or we'll figure out ways of actually partnering with EV owners to charge only when the grid has a lot of excess capacity on the grid, and that will keep costs down for everybody. The challenge that we have to fully decarbonize our grid is both tremendous as well as doable. And we need to be pressing on the accelerator for all of these things and not the brakes.
0: Adam Browning is co-founder and executive director emeritus of Vote Solar. Thanks for joining us on Climate One today, Adam.
3: Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about rooftop solar. Coming up, the role of solar in the shift to decarbonized energy sources.
4: The electric utilities are poised to take primary energy use away from the oil companies in terms of replacing gasoline with electric uh, vehicles. They're poised to take market share away from the natural gas companies because people uh, hopefully will be using heat pumps for space and water heating. It's the best of all worlds for the electric industry and the pie is growing.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Earlier this year, the California Public Utilities Commission put forward a proposal to change the rules around net metering rates for rooftop solar customers, cutting the amount they receive back from selling their excess power and charging them a monthly fee. Utilities and labor unions are in favor of these changes, arguing that non-solar customers are in essence subsidizing the cost of connecting solar to the grid. Solar advocates say the proposal would gut the state's rooftop solar industry and weaken our ability to address climate change. But California is far from the only state where net metering is a hotly contested issue. We invited three guests to join Climate One host, Greg Dalton, to discuss what's at stake. Bernadette Del Chiaro is executive director of the California Solar and Storage Association. Emily Fisher is general counsel and senior vice president of clean energy for the Edison Electric Institute, which represents investor-owned electric companies. Tom Beach is Principal Consultant with Cross-Border Energy and has done numerous cost-benefit comparisons between rooftop and utility-scale solar.
4: Most customers um, who put solar on their house, about 50 percent of the electricity is used by the homeowner, um, and that power never touches the grid. About 50 percent of the solar output will occur at times when the solar is producing more than you need in your house. And at those times, typically in the middle of the day when the sunlight is strong, that's when you will export the excess um, generation out to the grid. And then as a matter of physics, that power basically serves your neighbors. One analogy that I, I think is useful is if you, if you plant a vegetable garden in your yard and you start growing your own vegetables, You know, you'll consume some of those vegetables yourself and you will buy less vegetables from the local grocery store. Well, the local grocery store doesn't get to charge you for the vegetables that you're no longer buying from them. And uh, that's why the idea of putting large fixed charges on to solar customers, in essence, to charge them for the power that they're not using, is, is problematic.
5: Emily Fisher, your response to that? Why should people be charged for energy that never touches the grid?
1: So I think that's one of the things that makes it hard to talk about net energy metering and rooftop systems is that sometimes we're not careful with terminology. And one thing is that I don't think that the way that net energy metering is structured means that you're charging customers for the energy that they're consuming. And it might be helpful to take a step back and talk just a little bit about the three different parts that make up an electricity rate. There's a charge for the actual electricity you're consuming. And then there are charges for the transmission and distribution system. So if you're consuming the electricity that your home system is generating behind the meter, you're not paying for that electricity. You just get to use it and you're not being charged anything by the electric company. But what you're not doing is paying for that larger transmission and distribution system that, as Tom mentioned, you're using at other parts of the day, either to bring power into your home because you don't have enough from your own system, or to take that excess and sell it back to the grid. And so really the question with net energy metering isn't really about the generation part, it's about whether or not those customers are contributing to that larger transmission and distribution system on which everyone, including customers with rooftop solar rely. And so I I think that's what some of the net energy meeting debate right now is about, is are we recovering those costs related to that larger system? And what's a fair way of making sure that everyone who uses the grid pays their fair share for it?
5: I think everybody can conceptually agree with that, but it gets down to how much, that who pays what for that grid distribution system. Bernadette, your group and many others are opposed to these changes. Your response?
2: Yeah, well, I think um, Emily Fisher and I agree on one thing, which is net metering is about the energy that is exported to the grid on a sunny day. That's a good thing. And the debate in California right now is about what is that compensation? What should that compensation be? You know, what should people get? What's the price per kilowatt hour that people should get? I think what Tom is raising is this completely out in left field idea that Southern California Edison and Pacific Gas and Electric and Sempra, the parent company of San Diego Gas and Electric, have proposed and that the Public Utilities Commission in their first draft of this uh, policy change have embraced, but they are hopefully backing away from, which is taxing solar users for that self-consumption, that energy that never touches the grid. And I think if I could elaborate on Tom's metaphor for a second, let's now imagine that that homeowner not only is growing carrots, but has just become a vegetarian. So they're going to be consuming a lot more vegetables. They probably will be buying just as many vegetables from the grocery store but they're going to augment that with their own garden. That's really the future we're heading to as we electrify and we add electric cars, we add heat pumps to our uh, to displace our natural gas usage in our homes. We are going to increase our electricity consumption significantly, and it's actually really critical from a cost management perspective for all of us in California, especially, that we start to reduce our demand on the grid. We are in an electricity crisis right now in California. The governor declared it not long ago. We need more energy in order to power our society in a clean way.
5: Right. I mean electrify everything is one of the most compelling cases for addressing climate change. Emily, right now, soaring gas prices make EVs much more price competitive. Electric prices vary around the country, but a rule of thumb is that driving an EV costs about the equivalent of a dollar gasoline. What opportunity does that present for electrification of homes and mobility? And how is that connected to the electrons we've been talking about from rooftop and utility solar?
1: Well, I think Bernadette and I agree on more than one thing. And one is the value of electrification and helping to address climate change. Um, by and large, electric companies in the United States have already reduced their emissions about 40% below 2005 levels. And that's kind of the standard year we use to measure emissions reductions for a lot of reasons. And And that's a really significant reduction in emissions. And we're on a trajectory to do even more, even faster. And we're going to need a mix of bigger scale, renewable generation and smaller distributed resources to ensure that we have the electric uh, energy we need to do homes and cars and, and all of the things that Bernadette mentioned. So there's a tremendous opportunity here. I think one of our challenges is to figure out the right mix of distributed and large scale resources. But we're at a point now where we need both. So we need to make sure that we're incentivizing and valuing the amount of electricity and emissions reductions we get from both kinds of resources. And that gets back to a point that Bernadette was making. As we move toward a, a more electrified future, we need to make sure that we're doing it as cost-effectively as possible. And in many instances, larger scale deployments are much more cost-effective than rooftop deployments. And so sometimes it might make sense to overcompensate rooftop solar, but sometimes it might, might, might make sense from a customer perspective to look at how much less expensive some um, utility scale solar and wind deployments can be because they can be significantly less expensive. And so it's that mix we're trying to bridge. We're trying to find the right mix of resources, and there's room for all.
5: Tom, yeah, that's often the, the criticism, Tom, is that rooftop solar is expensive uh, compared to utility scale. Your your response to that?
4: First of all, it's, it's very important to recognize that the uh, Rooftop solar and utility scale power plants are not located in the same place. Rooftop solar is right on your house and uh, right where the power is needed. Whereas, you know, utility scale solar is usually located in a remote location where there's inexpensive land and a good solar resource. And uh, that power has to be moved um, over the transmission system to the load centers. And there are a lot of issues around transmission. It's costly. It's um, increasingly implicated in wildfires. People generally don't like to have transmission lines in their backyard. So the idea that we can Meet our clean energy goals only with utility-scale facilities. I think is is um, you know is is not correct. I mean, I do agree with Emily that there needs to that there needs to be a mix. And these net metering debates are in large part about how to set that balance. Um, I I think what concerns a lot of folks in the solar industry is that the proposals that have been made in California wouldn't. Just readjust the balance between small scale and large scale. It would devastate the rooftop solar industry because the uh, the paybacks for investing in solar would would become too long to, for people to reasonably uh, invest in putting uh, solar on their roofs. And that would be a problem at a time where we need both. We need both utility scale and distributed solar in order to meet our climate goals.
5: And Tom, in Colorado, your report for Excel Energy showed rooftop solar benefits outweighed costs by some $13 million a year. Is that right? And what impact of that report have on their pricing structures?
4: Well, that was a few years ago. I, As I recall, they uh, pretty much stayed the course on... Um, on uh, rooftop solar. Um, w- one thing that a lot of states have done, and I believe uh, was done in, in Colorado with Excel, is if, if there is a concern about rooftop solar being unfair to the customers who don't have solar, is to um, reform your rate structure and make the rates that customers pay more closely align with the utility's costs. And so, for example, I think people generally know that the cost of electricity varies over the course of a day. Uh, In California, when the demand peaks in the evening from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m., electricity gets very expensive. And so uh, Californians are moving to a system of time of use pricing where um, power will be more expensive from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m., less expensive in the middle of the day, which is, is when solar tends to produce, And so that is going to um, would reduce the cost of rooftop solar for for all rate payers by pricing it uh, lower in the middle of the day. Uh, That also aligns more closely with the utility's cost structure. And um, a lot of states have looked at time of use rates as a reform for net uh, to net metering that will help address some of the issues that have arisen.
5: Right. Some states have done away with net metering entirely, though some have reinstated it after a significant pushback. Bernadette, your view on that?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to mention there's there's many studies that actually show um, really robust growth in distributed energy resources where you pair the solar panels with batteries, actually reduce costs for all rate payers. Uh, Chris Clack is a, a well-known researcher that has shown through extensive modeling that if we were in California to continue to grow our distributed energy um, economy here, we would actually save rate payers over $100 billion over the next uh, 15 years. By reducing those costs on transmission and distribution and actually enabling more utility scale renewable energy to come onto the grid. So this is a win win for everybody as we electrify and decarbonize it's a partnership that we could be uh, in with our utilities and our customers and putting consumers in the driver's seat of our clean energy future. Uh, We just have to get around that sort of old 20th century mindset that the electrons should only flow in one direction um, and we can really unhinge the innovation of clean energy resources.
5: Right. And this is not happening around the country. Duke Energy has recently developed a new rate structure for rooftop solar in North Carolina. They serve power throughout the Southeast. Uh, Emily, your thoughts on on how there might be a way to to kind of have the sweet spot here that works for utilities and that also uh, encourages rather than kills rooftop solar?
1: Well, I think uh, Tom mentioned some really important concepts that kind of get at the fact that net energy metering as it was sort of initially proposed and has it ha- has been deployed kind of over the over the last 10 to 15 years is a pretty blunt instrument right it it has one price that the customer is paid for whatever it is they're selling back to the grid and it wraps in all of these system costs and it you know doesn't help them pay for the system that they're using to you know participate in the two-way flow of electrons that Bernadette is interested in facilitating. But, but one of the things that Tom mentioned that I think is really important is this idea of incorporating time of use pricing so that uh, the customer who is producing electricity at a time of day when it is really valuable to the grid because demand is high, is compensated at a higher rate than someone who is adding to the system when they already have an overgeneration and more solar than the system can currently use, you know, until the, the batteries that Bernadette is talking about are more widely available and more generally economic. And that is that Duke proposal in South Carolina that's moving forward where they have incorporated elements of time of use pricing to incentivize people to put solar where it could be most impactful, and then to recognize the fact that the value of electricity is different during different times of the day. And and so that's, I think, the future is when we all work together to come up with, with tools for compensation that are more nuanced and recognize that there isn't just one value to electricity throughout the day, that reducing peak is really important. And so it strikes me as that's a place where you've seen some progress, where the different stakeholders come together and try to find new solutions.
5: Bernard, I do think there was some uh, actually kind of surprising alliance around that Duke proposal in North Carolina.
2: Well, I think North Carolina and California have very little in common. So I think it's very dangerous to invoke that example and to try to import it into the California conversation. But I think it is important to note that... Net metering is actually fairly simple, and that's why it's been so successful. It's because it is a simple billing mechanism that gives the consumer the assurance that when they make a pretty sizable investment in their solar system, they're going to recoup that investment and save money. Time of use rates, which is an underlying structure, right? The rate structure underlies net metering, which is just the two-way meter and compensation for exports. That is something there's, I don't think there's any daylight between the utilities and the industry. We, um, in fact, embraced time of use rates uh, that is required of all California solar customers. And you will see actually CALSA has proposed some of the most aggressive real-time pricing uh, mechanisms for the state uh, to move us in that direction of, um, of driving energy generation, energy storage, energy usage in alignment with our carbon goals.
5: Tom, you, I believe you were involved in that North Carolina case. And isn't the rub here that rooftop solar diverts revenue and profits from utilities to homeowners? Isn't this really about fighting over money?
4: Well, you know, I, I think that that is not really the what what the focus should be here. Because the I think we, as we've all been talking about electrification and electrification means that the pie is growing. I mean, this is actually really... I think the, the best time to be an electric utility since uh, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. The electric utilities are poised to take primary energy use away from the oil companies in terms of replacing gasoline with electric uh, vehicles. They're poised to take market share away from the natural gas companies because people uh, hopefully will be using heat pumps to, uh, for space and water heating it's the best of all worlds for uh, the electric industry and the pie is growing. And the challenge is to produce enough uh, clean electricity uh, to meet that growing demand. And that growing demand will also help keep rates down uh, in the long run. And so there's, there's plenty of work and business to go around for, um, for the folks who build large utility scale power plants, for uh, distributed rooftop solar, for the utility workers who maintain the T&D infrastructure, uh, the pie is just getting bigger and we shouldn't be fighting over it as though um, it's a zero sum game or uh,
2: an industry that is shrinking.
0: Coming up, the case for more distributed generation.
2: We're in a climate crisis. We need to get off of fossil fuels now. We're gonna need all of these forms of renewable energy to get there and maintain our modern lifestyle but we can do it more cheaply, more cost-effectively if we build more distributed generation, not less.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Arianna Brocious. We're talking about rooftop and utility scale solar with Bernadette Del Chiaro with the California Solar and Storage Association Emily Fisher, representing investor-owned electric utilities, and energy consultant Tom Beach. Let's get back to their conversation with Climate One host Greg Dalton.
5: Emily, not long ago, there was talk of death spirals for electric utilities, and Tom's saying these are are heydays because electric utilities are taking revenue from oil and gas. Isn't this a good time, and isn't there a a win-win here uh, to be found?
1: Well, I, I definitely think that um, maybe some uh, discussions of the demise of the traditional sort of distribution electric company, I don't know, Mark Twain-like, were maybe overstated. And, and I don't think this is about loss of utility revenues or profits. In, in many parts of the United States, including in California, the actual generation costs are generally a pass-through, meaning that Utility doesn't tend to earn on them and they're not incentivized to build new generation. So, this isn't about like who gets to build the generation in large measure. I think the primary concern that a lot of electric companies have had with net energy metering is that concern that the people who are using the grid, maybe even more intensely, because now they're doing that two way flow of electricity that Bernadette was talking about, aren't helping to pay for the larger costs of the system. And that cost is generally fixed, it's determined by the Public Utility Commission, and then it is paid by all customers. And when net energy metering customers are being paid for the electricity that they are selling back to the grid at the full rate that includes those T&D costs, transmission and distribution costs, they're not contributing as much as other customers. And because it's fixed, it gets shifted to other customers. So I think our, our concern has generally been less about lost generation profits And more about making sure that the system costs are recovered as we all become more reliant on it, as we now are going to electrify more things, including our cars, and and just trying to make sure there's some equity in there for all customers, including customers who aren't capable of making that big upfront investment um, that we were talking about that's necessary in order to put rooftop
2: solar on your house. Bernadette? Yeah, well, I think we're actually hitting the nail on the head here. Utilities in California make profit off of building poles and wires. They build the infrastructure and they get a guaranteed rate of return on that building of infrastructure. So if you put all of the power plants at a great distance from our cities where we live and work, you build more power lines, you build more infrastructure and the utilities profit more. When you build the electricity generation resources and the storage resources at our homes, at our churches, in our cities, you actually cut at the utility direct form of profit here in California. But let me jump in say- let me jump
5: in there though for a second because it's those poles and wires and long distance distribution that caused PG&E to go bankrupt because uh, they're they're causing fires. So those poles and wires may have been a source of profit. Now they're also big source of risk.
2: Oh, and, and rate payers are paying through the nose to recover that liability and risk. It's one of the largest f- sources of our bill increases, actually. Rate increases has been liability for the poor management of pg es poles and wires. So they get to profit off of billing them. They get to have ratepayers help cover liability. And now they're going to profit off of uh, burying them and doing other things to make them safer. We don't disagree that we're going to need the grid, we're going to need more utility-scale power plants, everything that Tom and Emily have said about we're in a climate crisis, we need to get off of fossil fuels now, we're going to need all of these forms of renewable energy to get there and maintain our our modern lifestyle. But we can do it more cheaply, more cost-effectively if we build more distributed generation, not less. And therein is the divide between us and the investor-owned utilities as they exist today. That's not to say that there isn't a future for them, but it is to say that there is a tension right now, and it does come down to profit.
4: Tom, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to um, highlight what I think is a, 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 uh, a framework disagreement between Emily and, and myself. I mean, you know, she, she said that a significant part of the costs of the grid are fixed. When I look at this, I'm looking at the long-term because a a solar system will last for 25 years, um, and that's a a long-term period. Over a 25-year period, there are very few costs of the grid that are truly fixed. The grid is continually being upgraded and expanded and extended, so I I really don't see those as fixed costs um, to the extent we end up producing more power Uh, on our homes uh, and in our local communities, that's going to mean that the utilities won't have to build as many transmission lines or upgrade as many substations in the future.
1: So I think this is where Tom and I, like he's talking about fixed costs in the future. I'm talking about the cost that we have already expended to provide an essential service. And the electric companies have an obligation to serve. And one of the things that is really unique about electricity rates is that unlike other businesses who expend money to make or buy or build something and then get to recover those costs and the prices that they set themselves, these prices are set by electric regulators, by public utility commissions. And one of the kind of unusual things they do is they think about intergenerational equity. And so because it is very fairly expensive to invest in the grid on a long-term basis. We don't recover the cost of building a pole today in electricity rates that are charged today. Those prices are spread out over long periods of time. So yes, the grid is going to change in the future, and those will be new costs that we have to figure out how to share. But I'm talking about costs that have already been invested by the electric companies to provide that essential obligation to serve.
5: Inside Climate News recently reported that the nation's largest electric grid operator, PJM Interconnection, is so overwhelmed by energy developers seeking grid connections that it's proposing a two year pause on reviewing more than twelve hundred projects, most of them solar power. Emily, what does that say about how well the grid can handle a big ramp up in more utility scale solar? And doesn't that mean that there's a place there for for distributed rooftop generation of uh, electricity?
1: The problem with the interconnection queue about PJM is more um, not about the grid. It's it's pretty easy to build out the grid to support interconnections. There are really serious debates in PJM about who pays for what. So kind of similar to the conversation we're having now. And it's pretty hard to build transmission in the United States just in general. Siting and permitting is done on a state-by-state basis. And as I think Tom mentioned earlier, not everyone's a huge fan of having big infrastructure. But... A lot of studies that look at our uh, efforts to get to a net zero economy by 2050 talk about the incredible importance of the grid. A bigger grid, a more robust grid, allows us to interconnect not just more distributed resources, but more larger scale, clean energy that we are going to need to hit net zero. And studies like Princeton's uh, Net Zero America study from last year shows like a, a build out of two to three times of the grids is going to be necessary to achieve our longer term goals. But there's room for everybody. And we definitely need more distributed resources. And and I think, you know, states that are uh, part of PJM are also looking to incentivize and have, you know, other incentives to look at um, distributed resources in those markets too.
5: Uh, we haven't talked about community solar arrays. How do they fit into this discussion? We've been talking about kind of big industrial rooftop. There's something sort of in the middle, Bernadette, community models where people don't put solar on their roof, but it's, it's nearby.
2: Yeah, I think community solar fits in the yes and category. We need to maximize all available roof space and um, every, every roof in our vision, in our view that uh, has access and exposure to the sun uh, needs to have solar on it in order for us to reach our clean energy goals. And community solar is a really creative way uh, to expand upon the use of distributed generation.
5: Another important concept is battery storage. Tom, how does battery storage or solar plus storage challenge the traditional utility business model, and and how is the advent of uh, more residential solar going to change what we're talking about here?
4: Yes, uh, storage is you know a real game changer because you know the wrap on on solar is, is always that uh, you know the sun doesn't shine at night and there are cloudy days and it can be variable and you may not get your solar energy uh, at the time when the grid needs it. And uh, storage completely changes that equation because you can store uh, that excess solar that you have in the middle of the day and then uh, in your battery and then discharge the battery when demand peaks. And you you have a much more valuable resource uh, when you combine solar plus storage. And you know that combination is happening not just uh, on the scale of uh, uh, distributed rooftop solar, but uh, most of the utility scale um, solar farms in California also are moving to include storage uh, in their facilities because it, it, it just makes the resource uh, so much more um, valuable. With respect to distributed solar plus storage in the US, I think in the last five years, Uh, The average number of hours of interruptions of the electric grid has more than doubled uh, from about three and a half hours a year in 2015 to over eight hours a year in 2020. And customers want um, to be able to have a backup source of electricity. When we have hurricanes or tornadoes or wildfires, Um, all of those climate disruptions or um, more extreme climate events and that's what solar plus storage can provide.
5: Emily, talking about the future, you know, General Motors has a agreement now with Pacific Gas and Electric to basically use electric cars as as stores of electricity that can be sent back to the grid. Is our grid ready for that to have our cars as energy little mini power plants in the garage or driveway and uh, is that something that the utilities support?
1: Uh, They're they're more like mini storage units in the driveway, and I think it's going to be a progression. So I think right now what what PG&E and uh, GM and Ford are talking about is not necessarily vehicle-to-grid, but vehicle-to-home. So maybe instead of making an investment in um, a battery for your home, you can make an investment in a car and have it serve those two purposes. Tom pointed out increasing outages. It has been... uh, A couple of the worst years ever for hurricanes and wildfires. And as we work to make the grid more resilient, distributed resources can play a role in in helping there. And I think it's a kind of an all hands on deck situation. But I mean, we are seeing the impacts of climate change and they are pretty extreme. You know, I think electric companies are excited about their opportunities to partner with uh, some of the car manufacturers uh, to look at how we can work together I think we're trying to take some of the lessons learned from the conversations with the rooftop solar folks and and integrate them into these conversations and hopefully bypass some of the debates and move right toward progress.
5: Bernadette, there's an equity aspect to this here that I want to make sure we touch on before we close, which is a lot of people can't afford solar, though the price is coming down and there are, you know, it's more accessible now than it has been. What's the equity piece of this to make sure that coastal elites are not pushing costs to other lower income communities?
2: Well, there is an equity issue, and I think making rooftop solar and, and and batteries more expensive by slapping on a tax and really slashing the value of the energy generated by the solar system is the number one way that California could exacerbate any equity issues that, um, that, they, that are perceived in the market right now. So the number one thing we need to do is keep solar growing, uh, keep costs down, and avoid uh, penalizing people uh, for going solar if we want to continue to expand access and um, and affordability. But I think there's also a success story of the policies California has put in place to date. One in 10 ratepayers have solar today. OK, so we need to put this in context. It's a big market. We're very proud of what we've accomplished building over a million rooftop solar systems in the state. But it's only one in 10 we wanna expand that greatly. And within that market of one in 10, we have over 150,000 low-income families with their own rooftop solar system. We have over um, 700 apartment buildings uh, being equipped with solar that flows directly, um, benefits flow directly to uh, the tenants, covering over 50,000 families living in low-income affordable housing. And on top of that, we've got 2,000 public schools, over 1,500 farms, you know, the market for solar um, and the access for solar has really, really grown. A fastest uh, growing segment of our market today is in low and uh, working class neighborhoods. So it's a huge success story. It has come about because California has had policymakers that are invested in this clean energy resource and invested in making it more accessible to all Californians. And that really has to be our number one focus as we look forward is how do we lower the price? increase accessibility, and continue to create also the jobs uh, that flow down to the local level and uh, to our local communities.
5: Before we close here, I just want to ask you, go around quickly and ask, you know, what's in your driveway or your garage and what's on your roof? Do you have solar and what are you driving? Tom?
4: Yeah, I uh, I got my first solar system in 2003, and uh, I'm actually in the process of replacing it. It operated flawlessly for almost 20 years. And I'm replacing it because uh, I now have a plug-in hybrid car. I have an um, electric heat pump to replace my gas furnace. I just bought an electric range. And so my electric use is uh, is way up compared to when I first put solar on my house. And um I'm, I'm going to be doing plenty of business with uh, Pacific Gas and Electric in, in addition to uh, to using the uh, the electrons from my uh, my upgraded solar system So in the future um, like I said, the pie is growing and there's going to be plenty of business for everybody. Bernadette? Uh,
2: well I'm a mother. Uh, I've working two working parents in the household so we have two electric cars in the driveway a leaf and a bolt, and we have an almost all-electric home and a solar and storage system. Uh, And I think in my neighborhood, a very uh, modest neighborhood here in Sacramento, I see more electric cars now than solar roofs popping up in driveways. And I think this is the experience of most people that um, one of the great uh, benefits of, I think, rooftop solar and electric cars both is that they're very visible uh, to the community, and that helps people see what's possible and uh, follow each other down this road to a clean energy future. And it's something that is an intangible benefit of those solar panels on the roof. Emily, I have a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. I do
1: almost exclusively city driving, so I can't remember the last time I drove on my internal combustion engine. And actually, yesterday I had. Uh, a faster charger installed in my garage, much to my husband's joy. Um, He's pretty excited about having it charge a little faster, took advantage of some incentives that my local distribution utility offered to do that. I don't have solar on my house. Actually, I live in a historic home and it's a flat roof. It's not a great resource, but I live in a state where I can choose my provider. And so I opt for a provider that provides clean energy. And so I am uh, using my electricity rates to subsidize uh, electricity that's clean for uh, not just me, but also my neighbors.
5: The future is electric. Yeah, I'm kind of like, like I guess, Tom and Bernadette, also getting heat pumps and getting rid of the propane and uh, adding batteries, et cetera. So, well, thank you all, Bernadette, Tom and Emily, for joining us on Climate One today.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about debates over rooftop solar in the move to quickly decarbonize our world. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, but it's really essential to address the climate emergency. Please help us get people talking more about climate by telling your friends about our show or by giving us a rating or a review on Apple. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Austin Cologne and me, Ariana Brocious. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. Our host and executive producer, Greg Dalton, will be back next week. Thanks for listening.